Thank you, Jessica Moss. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate that ministry. Worship team, great job. I just want to reiterate what Kevin said. What a beautiful time to worship the Lord. It's good to be back um, with you guys after a Sunday away. Lisa and I were in Kentucky attending a family wedding. And we managed to dodge the storms. There were a lot of thunderstorms that week while we were driving. We didn't dodge it while we were at the wedding. In fact, the storm hit 10 minutes before the wedding began. We were all out on the front balcony of this venue, most of us seated, and the clouds got dark, and the winds began to blow, and the rain began to come, so we grabbed our chairs and ran inside, and the wedding was held to be held inside. That was not exactly planned, and a few minutes after that, we lost power. That was not exactly planned. So you have this beautiful moment with no power, but they made lemonade with lemons, and it was a, it was a, a wonderful wedding and a great time. I appreciate special thanks to Corky for filling in. Um, preaching is no small thing, and Lisa and I got an opportunity to listen to the message after, uh, on the way back after it was recorded, and we had a lot of good discussion. But we appreciate that, and I'm going to incorporate that into one of my upcoming sermons because we have a scene where the angels present themselves before God. And we see a lot of that in the book of Revelation. There's this dynamic here that we're constantly reminded of. So we're going to be back in the, we're going to transfer from the book of Job and, uh, and suffering into Revelation chapter 7. We're going to get our heads back into Revelation. It's a hard book, so it's kind of hard to keep your head in it. Things like to slip out. But in chapter 5, there was some, if you recall, there was some awkward silence because the call went out to who is worthy to open the scroll. You have this very important scroll in the throne room of God. And there was an awkward silence until the Lamb came forth who was worthy indeed to open the scroll. This was an important scroll, and this scroll had seven seals on it. And each of those seals, with the exception of seal five, unleashed a wrath or a judgment of God. And the first four were the the, uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they wreaked havoc and calamities upon portions of the earth in, in the forms of wars and famines and diseases. And then when seal five was released the scene took us from calamities on earth to a scene in heaven where we found the martyrs of Christ the martyrs under the altar in the heavens crying out to God for justice over the spilled blood that happened to them the sixth seal changed from calamities on earth mostly man against man to uh, calamities from nature. You have the skies being rolled up. You have stars falling. Uh, you have earthquakes. And just the, the whole earth through nature is shattered in a tremendous way. And so you could say that in the first uh, four there, with the exception of the throne room in five, you see man against man, and then you see basically nature against man. And these are all the wrath of God. It's kind of a, a pattern here that we will see as we look at not just the seven seals, uh, but we will look at 
the seven trumpets and also the seven bowls. There's some patterns there that emerge. Another pattern that we will see in this is that before for the way God decided to reveal, reveal this book, before you get to the seventh judgment in these series, there's, you, there's like an interlude where the scenery changes. And we get to see what's happening up in the heavens. And that's where we are in chapter 7. It's a, a camera shift, if you will. Chapter 7 is divided rather neatly into two different parts. And it all pertains to the saints of God that are in the heavens. In the first several verses, the first passage has to do with the 144,000, the 12 tribes of Israel that we looked at last time. And they are before the Lord in the heaven as saints of God. They've been sealed as His people. We looked a little bit, I took the liberty to take a little bit of time in thinking about the seal of God that was on the forehead, and that is a reference to uh, Ezekiel. The same thing happened in one of Ezekiel's vision, where God was going to send wrath and judgment, but he said, mark out my people so they won't be harmed. It's only, the, only those that do not bear the, the sign of God that will endure that wrath. And we find it in Revelation as well, and I took a little time to to consider the mark of the beast on the hand and, and all the different teachings that are out there and what should our focus be on. And I would encourage us to not focus on the visible or the literal marks, but it's more of an internal thing. We are sealed for God. Being marked is a sign of ownership. So we are either owned by God or owned by... Satan wants to put his mark on us. He wants to own us. So the mark of God, I wouldn't expect us to wake up one morning and rush to the mirror to see, do we have the mark on our forehead? Are we going to heaven? I don't think that's the point. Sadly, there are people, in, in Revelation, you would not believe the different teachings that are out there. And, um, but one of them is that there is some mark, and you have to have an x-ray of your frontal lobe, and you'll see this certain little mark in your brain, and that's the mark of God on your forehead. Uh, it's just a lot of different things out there. But let me just say, before we move on, that when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sins, God does something spectacular. He indwells you. He gives you as a deposit the Holy Spirit. We are sealed, the New Testament says. We are sealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That is all we need to get to heaven. you got the blood of Christ. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So the visible mark or no visible mark, we have all we need in Christ to get in to heaven. So having examined the 144,000, today we're going to look at the great multitude. And uh, Noah did me the great service of reading part of our passage. We're going to read it again this morning. That was a great new song, by the way. I love it. Can't wait to sing it again. So we're in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with, a, of course, a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful passage that we are treated to. So if the first eight verses of the main message of those verses were those who are, uh, are gods or owned by God will be spared from God's wrath, I would say the main message in these verses is that the people of God will enter into the presence and the joy of the glorious God forever and ever. So in essence, this whole passage, this chapter teaches us that the saints will be spared from God's wrath and not just spared from God's wrath, but they will enjoy eternity in the kingdom of heaven in the joyful presence of our glorious God where they will be well cared for, fed, nourished, and blessed to the very core. We basically have the protected and the unprotected. And that's how it often works in Scripture. It reminds me of the plagues of Egypt. You have God's wrath poured out on Pharaoh and his people. And yet God's people, his chosen people, were spared if they put the sign of the blood um, on the doorposts there, that you have the protected and the unprotected, those that will endure a series of terrible judgments and those that will be spared. But I want to just say, as I, I am constantly struck in the, as I read the book of Revelation, it's been several weeks now that we've had our heads into this, and I, I always just appreciate God's grace in these words. In the sense that this whole book, if you will, it's like an advanced warning. It's an advanced warning of the things to come and they're terrible. And I know that they're symbolic, but, but they're, they're symbolic of something real that's going to happen that will be atrocious and calamitous. And so these words really help us prepare for what is to come. That's why I see that there's so much grace in here. And it reminds me of Jesus' story in Luke chapter 16. And you have the story of uh, the very, very poor man and the rich man. And the poor man is Lazarus. He's absolutely impoverished. And he's so downtrodden and sickly in this world that uh, grotesquely, Dogs are licking his sores. That's his life. 
in this world, a life of misery. Well, he dies and he goes to heaven and he's at Abraham's bosom, at Abraham's side. Now, the rich man has a good life here on earth, but when he dies, he goes to hell. He doesn't like hell. Hell is miserable for him. And in this story, he happens to look up and see the poor man, Lazarus, and he asks Abraham, can, can you just send him to me? Because I am miserably parched. Parched. Can he just dip his finger in a glass of water and put it on my tongue? That's how miserable he was. That's how dry he was. And Abraham basically said that can't happen because there is a permanent chasm. There's a separation between heaven and hell and the two shall not meet. It's permanent there. And it cannot be crossed. And that rich man says, well, have mercy then. If I can't be saved, can you send a messenger to my five brothers who will meet the same doom and misery that I am meeting right now? Would you send a messenger and warn them about this? And the answer was, in essence, they already have the the warning. They have the law. They have the prophet. The prophets. They have everything in their possession. Every opportunity to be spared from the wrath. To be spared from the misery and from the thirst that you are suffering. They won't believe in another messenger if they don't believe in all of the messages that I've already sent up until this time. Now what is that? That is just solid grace. It's solid grace that God gives us opportunities and He gives us messages and warnings, sirens sometimes. A revelation is a siren, a loud blast and boom of the things that will come and they are real. And they give us opportunities to embrace it for what it really is. Especially for those who have not yet crossed into that permanent place of hell. There's still opportunity to repent. There's still opportunity to believe. There's still opportunity to see life for what it really is and death for what it really is and be, and be uh, spared. So I know that the book of Revelation, it's captivating. It really is. It's interesting. It's captivating. It's fantastical. But it's not entertainment. Everything that is vividly described will happen and is happening in real life. And in the end, we will find ourselves in eternity begging in anguish like those in hell or enjoying the living water of Christ like those in heaven. It always amuses me that we live in a world after all this time that still acts as if we just don't know what happens when we die. You just can't know what's on the other side. And yet we possess this book that tells us way in advance what happens or what will happen on the other side. We know as believers because God is a God of revelation and He tells us. We don't know all the details, but we know enough. Revelation is a warning of that. So I think there's a sense in, in God's grace in this book and the chapters that we've read so far, the chapters that we will continue 
to read, there's a sense in which this book is constantly whispering to us, people, make the call. Make the call. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to believe? Where do you think you go when you meet your end? There's accountability that's built and baked into this universe. There are authorities in place. There's a God that's real and living, and He's on the throne, and He's calling every shot. Though you make the call, heed these words, listen to the warning, and make the call. That's what is at stake. And the grace is that we get to stand here and peek through God's revelation, the window of God's revelation, and see what's on the other side without having to go there first. What a beautiful thing that is. So with that in mind, let's look at our first point, the people in white. They have the white robes, verses 9 through 12. And they are described as not just the multitude, but the great multitude. So what is great about this multitude that we found or we find in heaven that we sang about this morning in our new song? Well, they are great because of the scope of the nationalities that are represented. This is a great, not just a multitude, but a great multitude because you have among them people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. You have among them a representation of all humanity across the globe through the ages. They are represented in heaven. You don't find this anywhere else. Now in this world, if you try to get this many people from different nations together, war is going to break out. Fights are going to break out. Arguing will break out. But in heaven around the throne as they focus on the same object, there's an incredible one voice of agreement among all the peoples. This has been God's plan all along to include the nations. You don't have just Jew and Gentile. You have everything in between, everything possible. Because Christ seeks and saves the lost. This is a very intentional thing that God is doing in the world today. Seeking and saving the lost from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that that will be fulfilled what we see in the book of Revelation. So it's great in scope. We get a a glimpse of this. But it's also great in number. There's a lot of people. How many people? Well, too many to count. You run out of fingers and toes with this group here. Verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number. Of course, God can number them. He knows every hair on our heads. But This is a vast sea of people that have believed in Christ from all over the world in different ages. And we... we God has given us glimpses of His heart and His vision. And all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 26 when He promised Abraham that His descendants, those of faith, His descendants, they'll be like, if you look up into the skies, if you say, well, how many? God, look into the skies and look at the number of the stars and start to count them. You'll exhaust yourself. You can't do it especially in one night before the sun comes up. That's how many. It's, it's innumerable. And then again he repeats it and he says it. It's like the sands on the seashore. 
You're going to count the grains of sand. So all along, God's heart was to have numerous multitudes of people, worshipers, serving Him around the throne, worshiping and praising. So it's, a ma- it's great in its scope. It's great in its massiveness regarding the numbers of it. And you have this one voice, you have this unity. See, they all got the memo, wear white at today's worship service in, in heaven. That's everybody wear right, white. Well, you have to wear white. You have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ to even get into heaven. So there's a unity there, which represents, of course, purity. And how interesting that it says that, that these white robes, they've been washed in what? Clorox, bleach, they've been washed in blood, which is red. And you know in real life, if you put a white robe in red blood, it's not going to be white. It doesn't come out pure. But you see the symbolism there of the power of the blood of Christ to purge a person and purify them through the removal and the covering of sins. That's the power of the cross. And there are those happy, humbled worshipers before their throne in their white robes. It's a spiritual truth. And they're happy, and we know that because they're celebrating the Lamb with palm branches. We do that during our Palm Sunday. And it's uh, symbolic or uh, brings us back to that day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem And the people grabbed the palms and they waved it before them and they sang their praise songs. They were so excited to receive their king into Jerusalem. That's a symbol of celebration. There's a celebration that happens and an excitement in the throne room of God. They're they're absolutely ecstatic about their Lord and to be in His presence. So what are they so ecstatic about? What exactly or specifically are they celebrating? They're celebrating what God has done. Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God has done it. We're here. We're saved because of what God has done. We are celebrating God, they're not there celebrating their own accomplishments. It is a perpetual celebration of the accomplishment of Jesus the Lamb. If they were to celebrate their own accomplishments, it would be very short. Because Scripture tells us that God sets the standard and that we all fall short of it. We don't get to set the standard and pat ourselves on the back. God set the standard. It's higher that we can reach. But God clothes Himself in humanity and He comes and He fulfills His own standard that He alone satisfies. And they're celebrating that, the saving work of Christ. So if we are spared, if we make the call, we count the cost, and we get to be in the presence of God, we, we have to know That it is only because of the work of Christ. It is because of what He has accomplished and what He has done, not what we have done. It's not because we were a little bit wiser than the next guy or we were more polite or more polished or we were more self-controlled 
or discipline than those evil people out there. That's not how it works. Salvation is from the Lord. Our evilness that we share as humanity has been graciously and mercifully covered by the blood of Christ. So that is what they realize. That's what they're celebrating there. There, um, I get myself in a little bit of trouble sometime. I get tempted. I said that there's so many crazy things out there about the book of Revelation. And when I'm supposed to be doing sermon prep and you know, I spend a lot of time with it, I'm not one of those guys that can just like, I'm walking down the sidewalk and the sermon comes to me. That would be great. That's after a couple days of grueling research and prayer and like, what? You know, those kind of things. Anyway, in the midst of that, I get tempted to say, well, I wonder what people out there are saying about this passage. And so I go Google or YouTube something to see what they're saying about it. And I always regret it because it's always just something crazy uh, off the mark. You can't, you can't trust people. They're, they're uncredentialed. They're just big on opinions and uh, short on credentials. But <clears throat> I gave into my curiosity and I was reading this passage and I... I looked at two short interpretations of chapter 7. and uh, the, the ones that I happened to click on were the same teaching. And they said that the 144,000 were uh, Jews, which I don't agree with, but that's not a big deal. Some people believe that. But it was this part. And they said the reason they had the mark of the Lamb of God on their foreheads was because they obeyed the Old Testament law. And that's how you get into the presence of God. These what separated them was their obedience to the law. So I am seething that this kind of teaching goes out there because that is totally a works salvation. We do not present ourselves or receive the mark because we crossed all these laws off our list of obedience because we perfectly accomplished these things. It is the exact opposite. Of that, So unfortunately, as I said myself, I knew it. I shouldn't have done this. I should have just stuck to my sermon prep to things I know and trust instead of this self-salvation stuff. And that is not what we find in this passage. We find a people that are absolutely captivated with the work of Christ. They know the truth. They're immersed in it. There's nothing in and of themselves. And so what they do is they give their whole self to God in worship. Because they know they don't deserve to be there. That the standard has been met by Christ. God did it. God did it. He alone receives the praise and the glory. And they rally around him. Now, there's some redemption in this. Because uh, I succumbed to another temptation while I was looking at that temptation. Now, on this YouTube channel, you've got the little windows there. I see this uh, uh, t- sermon title by Alistair Begg. And it said, the man, in the, middle, the man in the Middle Cross. And I was like, nah, I shouldn't look at that. i got to get busy with my sermon prep. So, of course, I looked at it. And I was glad I did because the man on the Middle Cross, he presented... Uh, it was just a temptation I couldn't bear. So he says, um, and I just spent a few minutes on it, but it, I'm still guilty. But So he said, if anyone asks us how we got to heaven, and we answer with the first person, I did this, I believed, I gave my heart, we're wrong. 
He says the answer is the third person. He did it. He got me here. He died on the cross. He rose again. And then he began to speculate and have some fun with that whole scene of uh, the three on the cross, Jesus in the middle. And he goes on to say, when I get to heaven, in his accent that he has, when I get to heaven, I want to find and talk to that man on the cross, that thief on the cross. How did all this shake out? You were a guilty criminal. And you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, you made it. So he, so he goes on and he speculates and he says, uh, the thief gets to heaven and the angel asks him, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I, I don't know. Uh, excuse me? Well, let me get my supervisor, says the angel. So the supervisor comes and he says, uh, let me get a few things straight to figure this out. Are you clear on the doctrine of the justification by faith? I never heard of it in my life. Well, what about the doctrine of Scripture? Blank stare. And in frustration, the angel says, well, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer. If we don't revisit the gospel every day and realize this, we start patting ourselves on the back and we start in arrogance think, we begin to think that our little accomplishments of obedience and diligence are helping us get along in our way to be accepted by God. Well, the first temptation left me seething and then this second temptation, I was like, Amen. To that, the man on the middle cross. See, ultimately, the multitudes are in heaven and there are multitudes and they are from every tribe and tongue and nation because of the man on the middle cross. It's because of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. See, creation knew. They say salvation at all, the new heavens and the earth, it all belongs to God and the Lamb. Salvation is of God. The moving along in verse 13, one of the elders wants to make sure John is understanding this vision that he has. Uh, so he, and he says, um, he addresses me, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to her, him, sir, you know, which I absolutely love that answer. You don't answer the question that somebody asks you. You just say, you know. Man, that's great. And he gets away with it. But, and he said to me, there are the ones coming. So he answers his own question. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now that brings us to the second point, the tribulation. The great tribulation. This is one of the uh, most disputed topics in eschatology today I think primarily because of the different teachings out there and there's a teaching um, uh, called dispensationalism it's a teaching that began in the 1800s it became very popular in the 1900s and um, now's not the time to go into detail some of you may be familiar with it studied it but uh, it basically has it breaks the whole Bible not just end times but the whole Bible into seven distinct dispensations or periods where God dealt 
or deals with man in very specific ways and only those ways. And you begin with uh, the dispensation of innocence and then it moves to a, a era of life on earth, of um, uh, your conscience. God deals with you with your, through your conscience and then through human government and then through the promise that he gives Abraham and then law, there's a time of law, there's a time of grace and then finally the, the final dispensation of existence is the millennium there. So everything is nice and neatly packaged and everything that happens in Scripture is put in these, these categories. It was very popular and you may own a C.I. or a Schofield Bible. If you have one of those, that is a Bible that has been um, basically presented in the form of dispensationalism there. It was very, very popular. At one time, it was known or presented as absolute fact. Like, you can't dispute it. It's a tight biblical case. And there were pastors that got fired because they weren't dispensationalists there. So that was an era. Now it's cooled off since then. And people have realized that ah, it's just, the Bible's not that neat. Uh, you don't find many diehard dispensationalists anymore these days. It's just not doesn't work that way. But if you hold to that system then you will see this great tribulation specifically as that period of seven years it's spoken of. We know that seven in Revelation is the number, or in the Bible, not just Revelation, it's a number for perfection. So this would be, according to dispensationalism, the seven-year period before the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And they show different scriptures to get that interpretation. So that's what the great tribulation is if you are a dispensationalist now if you don't if you've never seen those charts if you've never studied that system but you just look at this passage and um, and the chapters before it in the context what do you see you don't see anything about seven years you don't see anything about the uh, the thousand year reign here you just see the multitudes in heaven and they are there because they've been taken out of the great tribulation so, when we have to ask ourselves, if it's not the seven year, if we're not going to take that position, then what is this tribulation? If it's not before the thousand year reign, it's got to be something. What is this tribulation that all of these people have been taken out of? Well, let's see if we can figure some of that out. See, tribulation is a word that is used very frequently in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. It just means it's a state or an area era that you're experiencing of suffering. We, we use the word trials and tribulations. Going through trials and tribulations, it's not good times. It's bad times. It's suffering. But it's used very generically in the Scriptures. And it's very hard to, in my opinion, narrow this down to just one group of seven years of a period of tribulation because that's not really how the scripture uses it for example in second timothy three twelve, the apostle paul says indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ my version says will be persecuted but basically it's the same word as will suffer tribulation maybe your version says that you will suffer tribulation so you see this word is used very vastly it covers a lot of different places at, and different times. 
when we read Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 in the Olivet Discourse, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So this happened in the, in the days of Christ. And even after, while he was alive, they were persecuted. After he died, people were persecuted. And it will continue. It has continued to happen. And it will continue to happen. There will be tribulation. Different degrees. Different places around the globe. Different believers will experience it in, in different ways. In different times. And different errors and it just you get the idea that it keeps building and it keeps building and it will come to an end because that's what revelation is about but you see it also now so the idea when that word is used is that it, it covers a lot of different time it spans places and and it's between the two advents you had the first coming of christ and the second coming of christ so it's interadvental tribulation John 16.33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. The world is filled with tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world. 1 John 2.18 Children it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So you see that a lot of times Scripture makes it sound like, like Jesus is coming back any day. And we don't know exactly when he's coming back because it's like a thief in the night. But you, there's always this anticipation because of the struggle and the tribulation that we endure. Like every generation of believers say, this has got to be it. This has got to be the end times. I mean, look at the world. It's terrible. It's ferocious. It can't keep going on. And yet it has kept going on. And it will keep going on until God in the from the throne room calls the shot. He knows when it will be. So the tribulation, it just covers a lot. It's really difficult. The point is it's difficult to nail it down. It's a little bit of everything. It's both the here and the now and it's on the way. And there are antichrists that have been loosed. They're antichrists because the gospel of the good news is out. And Satan does not want the good news to spread. He does not want people worshiping God. He's a false god. Desires people's worship. He wants to in, um, imitate God in his kingdom and system. And so there's going to be opposition of different degrees to every generation of believers until Christ returns so it covers a lot of ground not just in my opinion not just a particular period so i want to close this passage with a word what i i consider of great encouragement here in the very last verse it's a little nugget the great so we've seen the great multitudes the great tribulation and the great shepherd verse 17 for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. 
And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And R.C. Sproul touched on this a little bit this morning when he was talking about the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And we have the king in heaven, and he's being worshipped by the multitudes, but he's not just the king, he's a shepherd. And that's important to the people. As this is a, a, a take off of, again, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 34, where God had appointed leaders and shepherds for his people, but they were evil leaders, evil shepherds, and they just abused and exploited the people and committed atrocious sins. They only cared for themselves. And so God in Ezekiel says, I am against them and I will judge them. But he says this, if, if they're going to be judged and God wipes out those shepherds, then who's going to shepherd the people? God basically says, I will do it. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. This is Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So once again, you see that this is all God's doing. This little scene in Revelation 7 is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture because here is the shepherd to care for his people because humanity fails. Humanity fails. Pastors are flawed. Shepherds are flawed. You know, we can just take it to a certain level. We were reminded this morning in R.C.'s teaching that David... It was the golden age of, of Israel and everybody longs to get back to that, but even he was flawed. Not so in heaven. We have the great shepherd. He is the perfect caretaker. He doesn't just reign and rule and bark orders. He, 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 he gathers us in. He cares. He, he feels. He, he knows what we need. He knows our favorite drinking spot, if you will our favorite pastures, if you will. And so He sends the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and He is in the midst of the throne as their shepherd. And this gets really confusing if you read it because it's like a sheep farm out there in heaven. Now, if you'll notice that the, the shepherd is shepherding, sh- shepherding over the sheep, where the sheep, the people are the sheep, But who's the great shepherd? The lamb. So it's not like real neat categories here in all of these metaphors. But it always finds a way to come together to make sure that all the characteristics and all the beauty of Christ is beheld properly and properly understood. And it it just fits in because he did it all. He's the man in the middle cross. He suffered. He died. He rose again. He gave himself as a sacrifice, but has risen as king. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he rules and reigns. And one of the things that struck me this morning that I was going to say before Sam cut it off in Sunday school, Bobby Page got the last word, that R.C. Sproul said, I'm not upset, I'm just being, is that it's not like we have to wait for Christ to reign and rule. 
It's not like we have to wait for him to become the king. He's already seated at the right hand of the Father. He's already ruling and reigning exactly as he desires, calling the shots. We just can't see it as clearly as we will see it in the book of Revelation. It's already, uh, the transactions are happening as I speak. Christ rules and reigns as the king and as the lamb, prophet, priest, and king. And he's praised forever by the great multitude who is washed in the blood of Christ. And they're excited before him. They're ecstatic before him. But they're humbled before him because he did it all. I know that we're not going to understand it all in this book, but we will always understand enough. We will always understand enough to come to Christ, to worship Christ, to know Him, and to adore Him. So God lets us get a little glimpse here, and a little glimpse here, and a little glimpse here, and it'll all come together as everything culminates in the purpose of Jesus Christ. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.